You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Revitalize Our Cities Now, the podcast series for entrepreneurs, real estate investors, developers, and anyone interested in urban revitalization. Our host is David Michael, a real estate lawyer with the Lipson Nielsen Law Firm. One of his areas of expertise is urban revitalization. David's guests will include some of the difference makers involved in all aspects of urban revitalization throughout Michigan. You'll listen as experts discuss acquiring land, redevelopment, and Incentives, real estate and nonprofit law, immigration and economic redevelopment, private equity, venture capital, and more. Thanks for joining us. And here's your host, David Michael. Hello, and welcome to Revitalize Our Cities Now. This podcast is produced by Lipson Nielsen PC, attorneys and counselors. I'm your host, Attorney David Michael, and we are here today with Lipson Nielsen partners David Deutsch and Stuart Logan at Podcast Detroit in Royal Oak to record our inaugural episode of Revitalize Our Cities Now, or as they say in the podcast biz, episode zero. As attorneys and counselors, the three of us help our clients, generally businesses of all sizes and entrepreneurs, with business and real estate matters, everything from structuring a new business or buying an existing business to selling, leasing, warehouse office or manufacturing space, selling a successful business, and everything in between. Often, we work with clients whose businesses are located in smaller cities or suburbs. But this podcast series will focus on businesses and community organizations that are redeveloping and revitalizing formerly distressed downtown commercial areas and city neighborhoods in Michigan cities like Detroit, Pontiac, Flint, Saginaw, among others. In the next few episodes, we'll be taking taking a look at and talking to some people that are literally changing the urban landscape. People like urbanist Francis Grunau, former state representative and founder of New Solutions Group and Global Detroit, Steve Tabachman, Shelbourne Development Partner, Joe Ferrari, and Roberto Torres, Director of Immigrant Affairs and Economic Inclusion for the City of Detroit's Housing and Revitalization Department. You know, Stuart, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, Jane Jacobs. You know who she was, right? Jane Jacobs back in the six, Jane Jacobs back in the sixties was an activist in New York City, in Manhattan. And she, um, was a leader and probably a pioneer in this field. And so if anybody interested in the history of New York, or at least contemporary New York, would know about her. And even if you don't, you might know about her otherwise, since her character was portrayed in an episode of The Magnificent Mrs. Maisel's, the TV show that you'll see streaming these days in a big hit, won some Emmys and and some Golden Globes, too. So that's maybe an extra incentive for people to learn a little bit more about this, while getting some comedy at the same time. Uh, okay, and, and what, uh, what what channel is that on, or what station? Is that an would, HBO thing, Stuart? I think that's Amazon Prime, I believe. Uh, are we getting paid to plug this show? Or? I'd say we're not getting paid now, but I'm going to maybe, um, if this works out nicely, we're going to be able to approach the uh, producers and, and turn this thing into a moneymaker. Stuart, isn't that the episode where Midge went to a uh, an event with her? Uh, boy, I just I remember that episode ended up having causing some tumult in the family because Midge, the principal character, 
um, ended up discovering her estranged husband with the woman oh, right, he had right. thought she he had left. So some licentious behavior and some um, poor behavior, but something very different from the efforts of gentrification generally. Well, well, I appreciate your discretion there, Stuart. We do want to keep this a, a family-friendly show. So urban renewal in American cities goes back at least until the uh, – back to the 40s and 50s. Uh, city governments in New York and Philadelphia, for example, began to focus on remedies for what was referred to then as urban blight or urban decay. Uh, the, the process by which formerly vibrant parts of a city – fall into disrepair and decrepitude, which is um, often characterized by abandoned and boarded up, boarded up buildings and undeveloped or underdeveloped areas. In that context, urban renewal sounds like a good thing, right? Yeah, we agree. Yeah, I, I would too. But some people didn't see that that way. Uh, Jane Jacobs is one of them. Uh, she, uh, she criticized urban planners for urban renewal and quote-unquote slum clearance policies they called for large areas of city blocks to be raised and replaced with upscale high-rise buildings as insensitive to many families of modest means uh, that were displaced by those policies. Jacobs led community opposition to a planned expressway that would have gone through Greenwich Village and, and paved over the iconic New York neighborhood Soho and Little Italy. But even Jacobs herself was criticized for accepting gentrification. Gentrification, I guess, uh, how, how would you explain or define I would say gentrification? Gentrification is the process, I would say, and we've worked with clients in implementing it for better or for worse, and we think for better, notwithstanding Jane Jacobs. I would say gentrification is the, in, the raising of property values, to put it on a, on a dollar and cents um, plane, um, in areas that had theretofore seen significant depression in values and in living conditions and a way of changing not only the architecture, literally and figuratively, of the area, but of also enhancing the overall aura surrounding the area to making it, from a visceral level, probably more attractive to homeowners and businesses. So it's kind of an influx of money into a community and, and a sort of redevelopment, but it's not the, it's not the raising and building new things necessarily that we saw in the forties and fifties and sixties so much as it is taking existing buildings and rehabilitating them. That's right. We're seeing that more and more now. And it's actually much more um, economically efficient for our clients to go that route. It's also a, a procedure that allows us and allows our clients to earn certain tax advantages if they do go that route rather than the simple raising of of um, port parcels. And there are many advantages to that. And you also get, you know, we've in the past gotten credit from the municipalities and from um, non-governmental enterprises and awards for that matter. So that's really the direction that many things are going now. And it's atypical when you decide to start from scratch and then and just um, knock out everything to the basement and start all over and rede redefine the entire area um, anew. Well, Stuart, as we know, the clients that I represent, these entrepreneurs, are always looking for a deal and looking for something where they can buy low and sell high, as we know. And working with investors um, actually in Europe – 
buying properties in the city of Detroit, even homes, and they were buying them for very, very low prices, rehabbing them, as you know, and flipping them. And that's the classic of the entrepreneur's mind. Right. And that, that buy pro- low, sell high. Right. And that process is going on because I've, I've syndicated a couple deals, and by that I mean raising private equity for a transaction that has equity holders who are third-party um, financially eligible investors. And what we have done and what they have done, I should say, is acquire homes in neighborhoods, enhance those homes through their physical plant by repairing problems, doing um, – painting, every you know, soup to nuts in many cases, that can be done relatively economically because a relatively modest um, investment in some of these homes and some of these evolving areas pays great dividends because the it often results in a disproportionately high increase in rental values, a disproportionately high increase in prices. So that's well, also in particular a lot of in that formula they're using the same blueprint to rehab the properties, you know, the same sinks, the same showers and going forward and they can buy in bulk and then uh, ultimately end up with a beautiful new house but, you know, they're kind of a cookie-cut situation. Right. So we're seeing less wholesale raising and rebuilding and more rehabilitation of buildings. Right. Yes. So I'm thinking of one one example in particular in Detroit, in the uh, southwest section of Detroit. It's uh, it's a restaurant that that I like a lot. It's called Flowers of Vietnam. Oh, that's the place that you had me go to that we loved. Yeah, and yes. as I re- as I recall, you uh, yeah. you went the first time with some trepidation. Yes, I did. I was a little concerned after looking at the menu, but I forged ahead and was very happy. Well, I'm glad you did because it's one of my favorite places. But one of the things that I wanted to uh, to talk about was how in this particular instance, the restaurant itself now comprises three former storefronts. I'm not sure what two of them were, but one of them was a Coney Island restaurant. And to this day, the restaurant incorporates that Coney Island restaurant counter, the stools from that restaurant, and the Coney Island sign, neon sign in the front window. Right. And by the way, David, I had an opportunity to speak with the owner in – you know, from that one project, that one rehab restaurant, it stimulated the whole block. And there's properties now that we're going for much lower in value have increased as a result of the success of Flower of Vietnam. And that's, you know, I'm really glad you brought that up, David. One of the things that uh, that I had thought about when we decided to do this podcast was – what were we going to call it and how were we going to refer to this process of redeveloping interior urban areas? The the old name, as, as we kind of talked about a little bit earlier, urban renewal has a bad connotation and even gentrification has a bad connotation. Um, Wikipedia, I'm, I'm reading this from Wikipedia, gentrification is a process of renovating deteriorated urban neighborhoods by means of the influx of more affluent residents. This is a common and controversial topic in politics and in urban planning. And I think we got together and talked about the idea of a urban revitalization practice within the firm when I read an article in The Economist in June of last year. And I just want to read a little bit of this. This is The Economist magazine or newspaper from June 2018. The supposed ills of gentrification. 
which might be more neutrally defined as poorer urban neighborhoods becoming wealthier, lack rigorous support. The most careful empirical analyses conducted by urban economists have failed to detect a rise in displacement within gentrifying neighborhoods. Often, they find that poor residents are more likely to stay put if they live in these areas. At the same time, the benefits of gentrification are scarcely considered. Longtime residents reap the rewards of reduced crime and better amenities. Those lucky enough to own their own homes come out richer. The left usually bemoans the lack of investment in historically non-white neighborhoods, white flight from city centers, and economic segregation. Yet gentrification straightforwardly reverses each of those regrettable trends. Close quote. What do you think of that? I would say that that is my experience to the extent we, we work on that. And, we, and I do it principally in the, in the matters of generating private equity deals or working with people who raise money together and with a business plan to revitalize areas that have suffered. And – it has typically resulted in very little displacement or to the extent there is displacement, that trend or that um, function had already come and gone. It was something that was too late to reverse under any circumstances and it was something that was typically welcomed by the residents and those who may – which we didn't hear from, uh, admittedly – those who may have suffered – those that adversity that they might have been visited on them, that adversity struck me at least as um, unaddressed or unexacerbated by the by the activities doing to to revitalize the area. So, just as an example of uh, some of the urban revitalization that uh, that people might know in the area, the southeastern Michigan area. Um, in Pontiac, I wanted to mention a couple of, of really great examples. There's the Little Art Theater, Pontiac's Little Art Theater, and the Flagstar Strand Theater for the Performing Arts. Uh, these were really interesting real estate deals from a, from a real estate attorney's perspective. They were really interesting. And of course, in Detroit, we've seen a lot of things happening in the last decade and a half or so. Um, Flowers of Vietnam, I mentioned already, but there have been a lot of other well, restaurants and bars. Well, the restaurants are amazing. Now, as, as we know, as being a sports fan, we had to go down to the games, and there weren't many places to choose pre-game in terms of, you know, there was the main standbys. That it, I think you were even a bartender at one of them, David, where I uh, used to go. Uh, Union Street. There you go. Yeah, you're yeah. thinking of Union Street. Yes, I am. And now, if you know, right around uh, uh, LCA and Comerica, it, 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 you can go to a new place every every game, which is a lot of fun. And you can see this also with our clients now, uh, you know, coming down in in buying uh, well was then cheaper properties, which are not anymore in. Engaging in uh, rehabbing from a business standpoint and, and getting started there, yeah. But it's it's a lot of fun now to go down there and and try something new every time, as opposed to the mainstays. Yeah, and you're talking about the LCA on Woodward there, but also running along Woodward just to the to the west of Woodward, the, the what we used to call the Cass Corridor. Sure. That used to be yep. a really scary place. I went to Wayne State University uh, for my undergrad as as well as for law school, and 
when I was an undergrad at Wayne State, the cast corridor was someplace you avoided. Now it's it's chock full of extremely popular, extremely hip bars, restaurants, retail, all kinds of things like that. There's well, uh, the slow roll. I was going to a, a baseball game, and we went to a restaurant right in the, that area. That there's a pizza place that um, is a great place, and uh, we had unfortunately got out right when the slow roll was starting right down there, and we could not get to the game. In time. We had we actually had a walk to uh, Comerica from that spot because you couldn't drive, and it just that wasn't happening five years ago or seven years ago. Well, fortunately now there's Uber and Lyft, so if you, you couldn't have... you couldn't even get you couldn't get a vehicle in there. It was it was thousands of bicycles. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, we even have bike lanes in Detroit now. That's right. For what they're worth. Yeah, who would have thought that? I I, I still don't know that uh, that 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 I'd uh, feel safe. Riding a bike, right? <laughs> that Riding traffic? a bike on some of those bike lanes, especially downtown. If someone's making getting to the right hand lane, you better keep your fingers crossed because you go right, you go right across that lane. I've seen you drive, Stuart, so yeah. I, I, I can't imagine you on a bike either. Well, right. you know, I, I still take, um, I, I still take one of my two dogs. One of them's too old for it now, but I still take one of my two dogs to. Uh, we call it puppy play care at K nine to five in Detroit, which is on Cass Avenue and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. And uh, I, I have to tell you that every time I drop off Zubba at K9 to 5, I see people on bicycles in those bike lanes. So uh, it, it might just be a matter of getting used to it early. And, and there are even people – there are, there are young entrepreneurial types, young techie types living in actually – Working and living in downtown Detroit, something that we haven't seen for a long time. I see people walking their dogs on Woodward in uh, just steps from the courthouse in Detroit there, and they have to be living there if if they're walking their dogs, right? Yes, yeah, it's been quite a revival. When I was in the early 80s, when I was a young lawyer, I worked downtown and I lived in the Riverfront Apartments and before that in Trolley Plaza downtown, and on the weekends – you know, I would I could walk all the way across the city through the financial district, through the other areas of the of the of the region, all the way across to Greektown. And until I got to Greektown, there was a good chance I wouldn't have seen a single other soul on the street. Um, so it's quite a change now. So there are a lot of people. One of the reasons we're doing this podcast is we're hoping to encourage people. We're hoping to encourage communities and entrepreneurs to get involved if they feel strongly about something. I, I worked with for a, for a while the uh, Detroit Dog Park organization. They now uh, they've opened a dog park near the old train station in Detroit, where the train station that uh, Ford Motor Company recently purchased and intends to uh, rehabilitate into some of its offices. But uh, some of the questions that new entrepreneurs or, or, or small businesses looking to expand in urban areas, some things they might be wondering about are how do you how do you um, how do you get started in acquiring real estate in downtown areas, some of the things to think about. Probably most entrepreneurs and small business owners are familiar with the home buying process, but commercial real estate, that whole process is different, isn't it? Right. And, and we have clients who are developers, who are um, builders. We also have clients who are decide, 
who have a day job and they look to, they look to invest in commercial real estate. And it, to my, in my experience, it often comes to get a call because someone has been has identified a property that's for sale or might well be on the market for someone to ask. And it's something they see an opportunity in, something that they can, with a relatively modest or at least gaugeable investment, could turn into something much more valuable. And they might come to my office and because you know I work with uh, developers and entrepreneurs, and if they need financing, you know we work with banks obviously, but we also um, you know work with with clientele who are interested in raising money in the in a small cap equity markets or in a small uh, collaboration, a small syndicate, and comply with the securities laws, et cetera. In those cases, it's an inevitability that we will have gone through all of the, the sort of all the checkboxes of what is needed to know what risks are out there and which risks have we assuaged because all of those not only come part and parcel with the, um, with the real estate investment, the real estate analysis, but also with the securities analysis when you're trying to raise money from third parties, whether as debt or equity, um, through a syndicate of sorts. Okay, you brought up something really interesting, probably the most basic question. So a potential entrepreneur or small business owner or medium business owner finds a uh, parcel of land in downtown Detroit or downtown Pontiac or Saginaw or Flint, maybe has a partner, maybe has an investor. What about buying that piece of property? Should should the partners just buy that as Tenants in common, or should they maybe think about incorporating first and then buying it as an as a corporation? Yeah, with because of for tax reasons principally, and there are a number of other reasons. One would ordinarily um, establish a limited liability company or LLC. The tax reasons are myriad. There are other advantages, you know, that on which I rely when I advise clients over S-corps, C-corps, things like that. There are some cases where you cannot avoid using a C-corp, and there are many cases where you couldn't use an S-corp when you even wanted to. But typically, we would recommend in real estate an LLC. And that for another podcast, we, you know, we can talk chapter and verse about those advantages. David, I want to uh, talk just for a moment about a client that uh, you and I worked with there were actually four owners of a piece of real estate, and uh, one of them wanted out. Oh, right. That still continuing, or we're coming to the end of that saga, right? Well, we are, but yeah. uh, that, that brings me to something that I, I think people should be aware of. One sure. of the uh, the advantages of owning properties uh, through a limited liability company. Now, these particular clients didn't own the property as a limited liability company, right? Right. So what made that difficult was they did not, in fact, as Stuart um, was advising, uh, acquire the property in the in a form of an LLC or as an LLC as the owner. They owned it all together as tenants by uh, tenants in common. And uh, one wanted out. In, in It's not as easy to... Uh, remove an owner when you're owning it by tenants in common, whereas if you had an oper- an LLC, a limited liability company, which you would do what's called an operating agreement, that's sort of the Bible of the company. It tells you how to manage it, and in particular, it also tells you how to buy or sell somebody out. And because there was not a limited liability company owning the property and there was no operating agreement, we had no map 
to um, buy and or sell uh, a membership interest in one of the owners, and then I, wa- I walked down to the to the to the first floor and got you involved. <laughs> right. So what happens is, I mean, I mean, in a nutshell. The problem with owning the property without a limited liability company and without an operating agreement is you have naturally disagreements about the valuation of the property, how it should be split, who gets what part of the property. If you had a limited liability company and an operating agreement, that would all be spelled out. Correct. We would have – it's almost like I call it uh, a prenuptial for your business. Which brings me to another interesting topic that uh, you kind of specialize in. What if what if people are involved in a uh, in a business enterprise, and let's say they have an LLC, um, and, and they still, despite the operating agreement, or, or even in connection with the operating agreement, they decide they need to part ways, but they're, they're not seeing eye to eye. What happens in that case? Wow, you want to embark upon that? Well, that's we'll probably uh, leave for another day, but. Yeah, that is unfortunately or fortunately an area where I seem to be involved a lot in because I, you know, spend most of my time representing closely held businesses and and um, you know the legal term is shit happens and and uh, people you know they start out as very happy campers together and then they become unhappy campers and uh, you know hopefully uh, the operating agreement will address um, disputes uh, but in a lot of cases. When the owners are equal, uh, 50-50, uh, you have what's called the classic deadlock and you, in, your, in your situation where um, the company uh, can't be managed properly and then you get into situations where uh, we hopefully can work it out. But, um, you know, again, that goes to the planning aspect. You, you try to do the best you can in your operating agreement to address these issues. So, as I said, almost like a prenuptial for your business. So that's that's kind of stressing the importance of the planning aspect of it. It sounds good in theory when you have two potential business partners, quote unquote, that each should be a 50 percent owner. But if you do have that case where there are 50% beneficial owners, you still need to address where y- right. you have to have some out. mechanism to right. break a deadline. Rather, Russian roulette provision, which is sort of a, hey, uh, for not getting along, you have a bidding process between the two of you or, or things like that. But you, you kind of work through that. But right. yeah. And, and there are two aspects to it. One of them is the business divorce, which we were talking about. There's also the concept of a deadlock on an important aspect of how we're going to operate the company, which direction we're going or how we decide an important issue. And on a properly drafted operating agreement, we'll talk about how a deadlock gets broken on such an issue and there are different mechanisms available and we can talk about that another day. Sure. But that's that would be a, an important part of any operating agreement. So the long and the short of it is there are legal aspects to getting into a business and buying real estate and legal considerations for getting out of it. Uh, we haven't talked too much about the in-between stuff, things like due diligence, right? When you're buying real estate, you want to consider the environmental aspects, the condition of title. Well, David, I, I don't know if you recall, but I also brought you in on that one deal earlier in the summer that was like a law school exam on uh, on due diligence would had uh, – 
Literally every issue, zoning, environmental, title, survey, easements. You know, it, it really was. I was actually asked to uh, help rewrite a chapter in the real property textbook about that. I, I'm kidding. That's a joke. Yeah. But that, that, was a, that was a classic example of people in an earlier transaction, when that, when that particular parcel of real estate was originally split, failed to paper the transaction, as we said. Right, right. And as a consequence, there were questions left about sharing the driveway, sharing the parking, things that involve easements. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was kind of a nightmare. That is one of the uh, due diligence things that you want to keep in mind. And then, Stuart, you mentioned earlier the redevelopment incentives. Some of them are, um, I think, some of them that, uh, that we're familiar with, new market tax credits, tax increment financing, brownfield credits, land bank partnerships. And uh, I think the newest one is Opportunity Zones under the uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Right. And we've been working with clients on many of those. Over, you know, Some of the newer ones, we're just getting our feet wet on that, as is everybody. Some of the more, um, the, the, the more traditional ones we've done over the years, and those have all often provided an opportunity for, to enhance the, the, the down – I should say we – the bottom line advantages, the financial projections available with respect to any particular investment because you have lower taxes or a tax incentive. Grant money might be available too to certain things. That's also free money and it also hits the bottom line in many ways. Without too many covenants, you may have to um, wrestle with. So, So these are – often you will have some extra restrictions. You will have some – constraints imposed by the law by for taking certain, some of these advantages, whether grants or tax um, cuts. But in most of those cases, they are, it's, much, it's still a net, a very attractive prospect and will also um, make the investment very good directly or it will also, as I was alluding to earlier, make the bottom line projected cash flow much better if you were going to bring in your own investors. So something else to think about. And that sounds like a great topic for a future episode. Yeah. You know, before we end this inaugural episode, I, David Deutsch, you, uh, you, you are, I, I think, a self-described, and if not, I'll impose the uh, the the uh, scared to hear what's coming out description of your mouth. on you. You're a foodie, right? I am a foodie. Yes. Okay. So, what, what is your uh, latest favorite restaurant in the southeastern Michigan area? Wow, that's a that's a that's a toughie here. Well, if, it, if it's too tough, give yeah. me two or three. Well, what was the one in Madison Heights? Because I'm I'm old that in that memory that um, it, it's also it demonstrates. Are you uh, thinking about Mabel Gray's? Thank or? you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Mabel Gray. That is a lot of fun. And then you go to that Joe's Bar or Joe Bar next door. Joe Bar. I still haven't yeah. been there, but yeah, it's a uh, fun place. Yeah. And and that's again a, they're the classic example of neighborhoods who will be. And that's also a. a um, uh, a converted uh, Coney Island, by the way. Oh, is that right? Yes. I didn't realize. Yes. No, Maple Grace is interesting. That's actually in Hazel Park, right? Yes. Or, and, yeah, Hazel Park, correct. And, yeah. and that's Great not, place. Yeah, and that's not an area you generally think of or, or traditionally we have not thought of as a hotbed of fine dining. Well, right. It was a guy. He was out in White Lake and he moved over there, the head, the head chef there. How are they doing there? It's a, I think it's a fabulous place. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fun one. You should go. What about you, Stuart? Well, I'm thinking – I mean I go to Ferndale a lot, go to 
green space sometimes, go to Soul Cafe in West Bloomfield, places like that. You know, those are the places we've gone to at least the last couple of times we've gone out together, my wife and I and our kids. Okay, well, David and Stuart, it has been great talking to you today. Uh, we'll get together again in the future. In the meantime, as I mentioned earlier, we will be talking to some of the people out there, some of the actual developers who are really making a difference in some of our Michigan cities. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to Revitalize Our Cities Now. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss or questions about the show, you can email us at dmichael at lipsonnielsen.com. Make sure you join us again for our next episode when we talk with another difference maker helping to revitalize our cities now. Now.